by Auschwitz survivor Hayo Mayer and Islamic scholar Hatem Bazian. You can hear them on Thursday, February 17th, 7 p.m. in Oakland at the First Presbyterian Church, 2619 Broadway. Sponsored by the Middle East Children's Alliance, the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network, and American Muslims for Palestine. The event benefits Mecca's Maya Project, clean water for the children of Gaza. Tickets are $15, $10 for students, low income, available at area bookstores, plus at Mecca for Peace. Org or call 510-548-0542. No one turned away for lack of funds. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's minute past 3 p.m., and up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. And welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. This week, we present excerpts from Pacifica Radio's archives, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. five-hour radio special. The original program features Dr. King recordings spanning 11 years from 1957 to just a few weeks before his death in 1968. It's from the vault. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Part 1. Please stay tuned. Him to speak for himself. We begin this broadcast with the earliest surviving record of Dr. King recorded by Pacifica Radio. On June 24, 1957, our station KPFA in Berkeley recorded Dr. King at the Wheeler Hall at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. King delivered a speech entitled The Power of Peaceful Persuasion to students and faculty of the university. When KPFA broadcast the speech on August 1st, 1957, thousands of our listeners were entranced by his oratory, courtesy of the Pacifica Radio Archives. I need not pause to say how delighted I am to be here this afternoon and to be a part of this very rich experience and I can hardly speak to any audience in America without pausing for a moment to say thank you and I want to express my personal appreciation to you for the moral support and even financial support that you have given us in the struggle for freedom and justice in Montgomery, Alabama. This afternoon I come to tell the dramatic story of a handsome little city which has been known over the years as the cradle of the Confederacy. It is a story of a Negro community 
grappling with a new and creative approach to the crisis in race relations. It is impossible, however, to understand the Montgomery story and the techniques of persuasion involved without understanding the larger story of the radical change in the Negro's evaluation of himself. The brief survey of the history of the Negro in America reveals this change in terms that are crystal clear. You will well remember that it was in the year 1619 that the first slaves landed on the shores of this nation. They were brought here from the soils of Africa. Unlike the Pilgrim Fathers who landed at Plymouth a year later, they were brought here against their wills. Throughout slavery, the Negro was treated in a very inhuman fashion. He was a thing to be used, not a person to be respected. He was merely a depersonalized cog in the vast plantation machine. The famous Dred Scott decision of 1857 well illustrates the status of the Negro during slavery. For in this decision, the United States Supreme Court said in substance that the Negro is not a citizen of this nation. He is merely property subject to the dictates of his owner. With the growth of slavery, it became necessary to give some justification for it. It seems to be a fact of life that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually reaching out for some rationalization which ends up clothing an obvious wrong in the beautiful garments of righteousness. And this is exactly what happened. And the men of the slave owners face the danger that forever confronts religion and a too literalistic interpretation of the Bible. That is the danger that religion and the Bible not properly interpreted will be used as instruments to crystallize the status quo. And this is exactly what happened. And so it was argued from pulpits across the nation that the Negro was inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. Paul's dictum became a watchword, servants be obedient to your master. And one of the ministers had probably read something of the logic of Aristotle and so he could put his argument in a form comparable to an Aristotelian syllogism. He could say all men are made in the image of God. That's a major premise. Then comes a minor premise. God, as everybody knows, is not a Negro. Then comes a conclusion. Therefore, the Negro is not a man. This was the type of reasoning. This was the type of reasoning that prevailed. Living under these conditions, 
Many Negroes lost faith in themselves. Many came to feel that perhaps they were less than human. The tragedy of physical slavery is that it always leads to the paralysis of mental slavery. So long as the Negro accepted this place assigned to him, this subservient attitude, a sort of racial peace was maintained. But it was an uneasy peace in which the Negro was forced patiently to accept injustice and exploitation. It was a negative peace. It was not positive peace because true peace is not merely the absence of some negative force but the presence of some positive force. True peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. And the peace which existed at this time was a negative peace, devoid of any positive meaning. But then something happened to the Negro. Circumstances made it necessary for him to travel more. His rural plantation background gradually gave way to an urban industrial life. His cultural life was gradually rising through the steady decline of crippling illiteracy. And even his economic life was developing through the influence of organized labor and the growth of industry. And all of these forces conjoined to cause the Negro to take a new look at himself. Negro masses all over began to reevaluate themselves, and the Negro came to feel that he was somebody. That was an excerpt of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, The Power of Peaceful Persuasion, delivered on June 24, 1957. You are listening to the Pacifica Radio Archive's original series, From the Vault. For more information, go to fromthevaultradio.org. Next, we hear from Pacifica Radio KPFK producer Margaret Prescott. Hi, I'm Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, broadcast on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. You're listening to the Pacifica Radio Archives, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. The next speech we will play today is a speech delivered on the steps of Sproul Hall at the University of California, Berkeley. With an audience of university students, faculty, and the public, Dr. King speaks about the immoral consequence of the United state's involvement in Vietnam. The speech is entitled, America's Chief Moral Dilemma. Thank you very kindly for your heartwarming applause. Someone has said that when an audience applauds you before you speak, that represents faith. When they applaud in the middle of your speech, that represents hope. And when they applaud at the end, that represents love. <laughs> so you have demonstrated great faith today, and I certainly want to appreciate uh, your very heartwarming applause. Our nation suffers from a kind of poverty of the spirit, which stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. Yes, we've learned to fly the air like birds. We've learned to swim the seas like fish. 
And yet we have not learned the simple art of walking the earth as brothers and sisters. Henry David Thoreau talked once about improved means to an unimproved end. And so often we have allowed the means by which we live to our distancy ends for which we live. It seems to me that this is expressed nowhere greater than in the continued existence of racism, poverty, and war. These are the three evils that I want to talk about this afternoon, evils that must be dealt with and problems that must be solved if we are to go on positively and creatively in the days ahead. There are understandable suspicions in some segments of the Negro community concerning the commitment of white Americans. And I can understand this feeling psychologically and otherwise. No one must allow this feeling to make us feel that the Negro can do this job all by himself. Somehow we must work together, realize that by working together and creating constructive, committed alliances, we can go on in the days ahead. And I, for one, am convinced that there are still thousands, even though they represent a numerical minority of white persons in this country, many of whom are under the sound of my voice right now, who cherish justice and democratic principles above privilege and who are willing to go with us all the way. And this is why I can still sing without any reluctance, black and white together, we shall overcome. the second evil that I would like to mention is the evil of poverty. Like a monstrous octopus, it extends its nagging prehensile tentacles in villages and cities all over our nation. Some 40 million of our brothers and sisters are poverty-stricken. Many of them go to bed hungry at night. I've seen them with my own eyes. I've lived with them in the ghettos of our nation. Some of them are Indians. Some are Mexican-American. Some are Puerto Rican. Some are Appalachian whites. And the largest group in terms or in proportion to its size in the population is the American Negro. Negroes and poor people generally find themselves today smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. 
Now something must be done about this. Something must be done about it quickly. If the nation as a whole confronted what the Negro is presently confronting economically, we would be in a major depression more staggering than the depression of the 30s. And it's not only unemployment. Most of the poor people are working every day but earning so little money. They cannot begin to gain the basic necessities of life. Something must be done about this. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. Ultimately, a great person is concerned about the least of these. And I contend that we still have poverty in America today because there are still all too many people who are trying to be conscientious objectors in the war against poverty. There's somewhere else we ought to be conscientious objectors, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, but not in the war against poverty. The problem is, you see, we have the resources in America to end poverty. The question is whether we have the will. And if we are to end poverty, there must be a tremendous reordering of priorities. Senator Hockey estimated the other day that we spend $500,000 to kill every enemy soldier in Vietnam. And when you look at the other side, it's tragic. We spend only $53 a year for every person that's considered poverty-stricken. And half of that goes for salaries for those who are not poor. The question is, what are we trying to win today? I'm afraid that the administration of our nation is more concerned about winning an unwinnable war in Vietnam than about winning the war against poverty right here at home. a portion of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, America's Chief Moral Dilemma. You're listening to the Pacifica Radio Archive's original series, From the Vault. For more information, call 1-800-735-0230. Next, we hear from Pacifica Radio KPFK producer, Jerry Quickly. This is Jerry Quickly, host of KPFK's Beneath the Surface. On March 16, 1968, less than three weeks before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he delivered the last speech he was to give in Los Angeles to a group of artists 
They were concerned with Vietnam. It took place at a house in the Hollywood Hills, not far from KPFK Studios. Pacifica Radio was there to record the event, and the Pacifica Radio Archives has preserved the recording and made it available for today's broadcast. Now, I'm going to try to be very brief, and I can assure you that brevity is a magnificent accomplishment for the Baptist preacher. <laughs> and since I have two sermons to preach in uh, Los Angeles tomorrow morning, uh, I can assure you that I'll hold the lengthy message until that time. But I do want to thank you for your presence, and I think your presence is indicative of the fact that you are concerned about the great problems that we face uh, in our nation and all over the world. We have just heard from uh, Marlon Brando that these are confusing times. And I don't think anyone would uh, disagree with that. We are faced with a situation where we find restlessness among the poor and discontent among the affluent. And for some reason, it seems that this uh, mammoth uh, ship of state is not moving toward new and more secure shores, but toward old destructive rocks. It seems somehow that things are mixed up in our country. We have confused policies, confused priorities, and indeed confused purposes. I remember so well that President Johnson raised a question uh, some weeks ago when he was giving his State of the Union address. He talked of all of the beautiful television sets that we have over the nation, in fact, he gave the number, about 70 or 80 million. And he talked about uh, the beautiful automobiles and, and the massive expressways that will hold our automobiles up and keep them flowing. He talked about the number of automobiles, new automobiles that come out every year. And he said after that, yet that is questioning in the land. That is a strange restlessness. <laughs> and I guess uh, he raised the question because uh, he didn't quite know what was wrong. <laughs> well, there is something radically wrong. And I suspect it is that in all too many instances, we have allowed the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. We have maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. And so we've ended up with guided missiles and misguided men. And I guess that's the basis of the questioning and the restlessness facing uh, this generation. Our nation is in a mess. The world is in a mess. Now the question is, what do we do? 
And I must confess that I have uh, no pretense to omniscience. I don't know everything, and the answers are hard to find today uh, because of the great ambiguities of life and history. But we have to do something. Marlon Brando also mentioned the riot report, the Kerner report, that came out a few days ago. And it said some things to us that we cannot ignore. Some of us have been saying these things all along, but uh, nobody paid much attention to them. Now, maybe after they have now been said by a presidential commission, and now that these things have the halo of respectability about them, maybe some people will listen. But in gloomy and realistic Terms That report pointed out that our nation is moving toward two societies, one white and one black, separate and unequal. And the fact is that with this kind of move taking place, hatreds are deeper, tensions are greater, misunderstanding will be wider. But the commission report didn't stop that. It brought out another thing that is often painful to hear. And yet it must be heard if the problems that we face in our nation are to be solved. And that is the fact that racism is still at the center of our nation. We must honestly face the fact that America is a racist society. And we must see racism for what it is. It is a myth of an inferior people. It is a tragic notion that one group has all of the worth and uh, all of the knowledge, all of the significance all of the purity and another group has all of the inferiority the worthlessness and the impurity and whenever racism is a basic philosophy whether it is expressed overtly or whether it is subconsciously or latently held it always brings into being an absolute disrespect for human personality. Now, the first thing that must be on the agenda of our nation is to get rid of racism in all of its dimensions. And it means that white America will have to do something positively affirmatively and meaningfully in order to bring all of God's children into the mainstream of the life of this nation. It cannot be done short of something massive. And it means that those who have not known the pathology of the ghetto will have to somehow take that empathetic journey 
and join hands with those who have been denied and who have been hurt and who have been exploited for so many years. Massive programs are needed, and that means billions of dollars. And the question is whether the affluent part of America is willing to make the sacrifice so that everybody will be able to live a creative life. From the Vault is a weekly program produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and grants from the Grammy Foundation, the Ford Foundation, University of California Berkeley's Moffett Library, the Pacifica Foundation, and from contributions from Pacifica Station listeners. For more information on this program or to find information on how to purchase a copy of this program or any of the archive materials we present, go online at fromthevaultradio.org or call the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. This week's episode was produced and written by Brian DeShazer and Mark Torres. If you're in the Los Angeles area and would like to volunteer on From the Vault, please go to our website and find out how at fromthevaultradio.org. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. This program was executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and myself, Brian DeShazer. Thanks for listening. You are listening to KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF 88.1.